0: As we come to the 13th verse of this fourth chapter, we find the Word of God reminding us again of the importance of abiding in God. And this is a theme that is introduced in John's Gospel as well as this letter that was written by John. But what does it mean to abide? Let's make sure that we understand the meaning of this important word. To abide in the Lord Jesus Christ in God means that we remain in Him. It means that we dwell in Him, that we see the importance of the relationship that God has given us. It's not just a theological concept. It's a way of life. It is something that we are to pursue with our heart. It is something that we are to come under God's authority in. That's what God means when He says to abide in Him. It means that He becomes our home. He becomes the place that we count on, the person that we count on above all else. Really, it's talking about a lifestyle. It's living what we believe, not just seeing God as a collection of intellectual or theological thoughts, but seeing God as the most important person in our life. Gravitating to Him, counting on Him, making Him The anchor of our soul. That's the idea of abiding in God. You know, a couple of years ago, I went to Cape Cod on one of my many fishing vacations there. And I'm so cheap, I hate to pay money for a boat. So one of the guys in Rob's church, a young man, had a somewhat rickety boat that he invited us to go out on. And I said, okay, we'll we'll go out. So we go out, have a beautiful morning of fishing, caught so many fish. They were all huge, of course. (laughs) And so we're getting ready to wrap up, and we were just drifting along, catching fish in the current. Unfortunately, the battery current wasn't able to start the engine. So here we are, of course the current is moving away from shore, and we thought, uh oh, what are we going to do? I didn't want to wind up in England, so we thought, hey, we'd better call a towing service, and you really are at their mercy when you do that. So we called and was quoted a price of $700. We bit. We said, what are we going to do? We can't get in there apart from it. So we called them and we're waiting for CETO to come from about 20 minutes away. But then we noticed something else. The current that we were in ran into a current where a river was coming off of Cape Cod. And the two mixed right where we were targeting. And immediately the thought, uh-oh. So we took an anchor and we threw the anchor out, and the anchor didn't hold. You see, the boat was bigger than the anchor was rated for. So rather than grabbing hold of the sand, we just plowed a little furrow in the sea bottom. It slowed us, but it certainly didn't stop us. So we were praying, and thankfully... Seto got there before we reached the current, but not long before. We were worried because we were adrift and headed towards some pretty treacherous waters. God is the anchor for our soul. He is the one who holds us sure and fast. And when we abide in Him, we become confident of that. We don't need to fear treacherous waters. We don't need to fear anything because we have God. And the more we abide in Him, the more the reality of that truth begins to grip our hearts. What we find here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, is a call to abide in God to really count on Him as our anchor. So, as we come to this text, first of all, what we want to see is the importance of abiding in God's truth and God's love. And when we abide in God's truth and God's love, we will be assured that God is abiding in us, that We have a relationship with Him, and we know that because of the Spirit of God that He has given us. Look at this 13th verse and and look carefully at what it says. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Now, this is another time that John is talking about The ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives throughout the third and fourth chapters. He has brought us to this important doctrine that we have a relationship with the Father, but we also have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul, as we have seen the last couple of times, wrote this in the book of Romans to assure us of this ministry of the Holy Spirit when he said this, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we have this unique relationship with God through the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to abide in Him. And that's what John is reminding us of in this text. He wants us to understand that we abide in God, but not in the power of our own strength. We abide in God because of the unique relationship that we have with God through the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives, who comes into our lives the moment that we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. He gives us new life, a spiritual birth, and He gives us the assurance that we have this relationship with God. But, you know, the ministry of the Spirit of God is more than just the Spirit of God kind of being there externally. We have the Spirit of God's ministry to us internally. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Spirit of God indwells the child of God. You have such a special relationship with God. That is our assurance. As we become more aware of biblical teaching, biblical truth, that the Spirit of God is within us, we find that our assurance in God and our relationship with Him increases. Now, I want you to look at something else in this 13th verse. In this scripture, it says, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Now, at first I just glossed over that and said, yes, He's talking to all of us. But then I started praying about this and really thinking about what's being expressed by that one little word, us. He could have just as easily said, look, each of you have the Spirit of God abiding in you. But He didn't. He said the Spirit of God abides in us. He's talking about this aspect of our interrelationship as believers. We are all indwelled by the Spirit of God. We share as partakers of the Spirit of God. And really, I think what it's talking about is the importance of our connectivity with other believers. God doesn't want us to go through life alone as believers. He wants us to engage with one another. That's why John talks so much about the importance of loving our brothers and not hating our brothers. God wants us to have that connection with one another. And I would submit to you, as I become more secure in my relationship and fellowship with God, and as I understand more of Him in me, then I will gravitate toward deepening my relationship with fellow believers who share in that ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is what God wants us to do, how He wants us to live. We share as partakers of the Holy Spirit, and we have been given that ministry by the Holy Spirit as the people of God. But something else we see in this text. You know, we abide in God's truth and love, and the entrance into that abiding comes by agreeing That Jesus is the Son of God sent to be the Savior of the world. Look at verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, here, John is sharing with us we have seen and testified. Now, some think that John is merely referring to himself and the apostles, and it's hearkening back to the first chapter where John shares, look, what I've seen, what my hands have handled, what I have heard, this I testify or share with you. But I think there's more to it than just the apostles and John in this. You see, when I come into a personal relationship with God, I too see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As a matter of fact, I don't enter into a relationship with God until I see Jesus as the Son of God and as the one who was sent to be the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the world, but my own personal Savior. I come to terms with that truth. I agree with it. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to come to the place to where we embrace Jesus Christ for who He is. And we abide in Him when we do so. We need to see that He is sent by the Father. In other words, understanding who the Jesus of Scripture is, understanding that Jesus existed before Christmas, before being born in the manger, that He was sent, that He was God Himself, came in the flesh lived among us, and died on the cross. But more than that, He did it for the world. To me, this is very compelling as we look at verses 14 and 15, as far as this offer of salvation that John is writing about. Notice the end of the 14th verse. Sent His Son to be the Savior of what? world. And then, just in case we don't get it, look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. What the Scripture is sharing with us is this offer of salvation that God freely gives is open to all. That He came to save the world. And that He offers that salvation to anyone and everyone and whoever responds by confessing, by agreeing with God that Jesus is who He claimed to be, that He could do what He claimed He could do, forgive our sins. When that happens, we come into that relationship with the Father. Now this is great. You know what this means? No one can say, if they do not have a relationship with God, that God did not make a way available for them. God holds forth this offer of salvation to whoever. You know, in the original Greek, that word whoever, you know what it means? Whoever. There's no loophole. There's no crazy hermeneutical hijinks that we can get into to make it mean something else. It carries with it the idea, whoever. So here is God saying clearly that the offer of salvation is there for whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't it important that John shares this with such clarity? God saves His heart is salvation. He makes the way of salvation available. And He extends it to whoever. This is something that God drives home. For those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we find a place where we can abide in Him and He in us. So it's not just a system, a religion. It really is a relationship that we enter into as we confess who Jesus is. But then we come to the 16th verse. And here in the 16th verse, I find such beauty in what is being shared because what God wants us to do is to accept this important fact that I am loved by God And I need to abide in Him. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now let that sink in for just a minute. Do you really begin to grasp the love that God has for you? Now I recognize in the futility of our human minds... We can never come to the place to where we fully understand that God loves us. But don't let that be a cop-out for you. Understand that you are passionately, intimately loved by the Creator. Let that sink into your heart. Let that wash over you. Let that be your anchor. You see, many have this image of God that He tolerates us, but doesn't care much for us. What we find in Scripture is something quite different. God has a love for me, and I need to believe that. God has said it in His Word. It is truth. And that needs to become a foundational part of my life. You see, when I understand that I am passionately and intimately loved by God, that's going to affect the way that I live. I will live in response to that love. And I will abide in that love. That's what God wants us to do. And listen, this is produced by the Spirit of God. I grasp the love of God, but I also am driven to express the love of God to those around me. Paul wrote this in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no love. Look at what heads the list. Love. And these other virtues are really expressions of love in many ways. Because I am given the Holy Spirit, because I am a recipient of the love of God, it should dramatically influence the way that I live. And I think that's the message of this passage. But then the passage goes on. As we come to verse 17, we find that we need to allow God's truth and His love to change us. And look at what John begins with in discussing this as we come to verse 17. We can approach the day of judgment with confidence. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. Now, here's the question. In verse 17, when it says, by this, love is perfected with us, what does this refer to? I think this harkens back to what we just saw in that verse, that we are completely and passionately loved by God. But I think it also moves ahead to the last part of that phrase where it says, because as He is, so also are we in this world. But the question is, what does John mean when he says, as he is, so are we in this world? Now, I would have always thought, initially upon reading this, that it probably referred to holiness and the idea that I avoid sin. But really, I don't think that's what the context of this passage is driving at. What John has been discussing is the love of God and what he will continue to in this context, to discuss again, is the love of God. What is it about God that I'm to imitate? And I think the answer to that question is the love of God. As I allow the love of God to wash over me and transform me, it will radically change the way I love those around me. I can't help but do that. I can't allow emotions to well up in me and love in that way because they play out. I can't in my own strength just look and say, hey, I'm going to be more loving. It doesn't play out. But as I abide in God and experience that beauty of God's love in my life, it spills over into the lives of other people. And that's how we're to be like Him in this world. And here's what that will produce in us confidence on the day of judgment. In other words, I have it settled in my heart and in my mind where I stand with God because I have experienced His love for me, but also because I am sharing that love with those around me. This theme of confidence. In the day of judgment, it's repeated many times, and confidence in our relationship with God. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 28, and notice what the scripture says And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Look at chapter 3, verse 21, and notice the Scripture has again this same idea. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And then chapter 5, verse 14, also the same idea of approaching God with confidence because it says, and this is the confidence we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You know what I think I've drawn from 1 John as I've looked at these many texts that address the idea of confidence? It's this. God wants me to know that I am loved by Him and to not shrink away from Him, but to run toward Him. That's how God wants to relate to us. He doesn't want us to be unconfident in our relationship with Him. He wants us to abide in Him, trust in Him, draw from Him the hope that we have as a child of God. Too many Christians shrink away from God. We look at our failures. We're told by so many others that we're awful. We have this image of God that He is standing over us, pushing us away because of who we are, and that's not a biblical picture for the child of God. You are intensely loved by the God of the universe, and He doesn't want you to shrink back from your relationship with Him. He wants you to pursue A relationship and fellowship with Him. That's the God that we love and that we serve. And this is further touched upon as we come to verse 18. Verse 18 tells us that as I allow God's truth and love to change me, I will avoid fear by being perfected in God's love. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You know, as a pastor through Many years of ministry, I've counseled many people who struggle with doubts about their salvation. There was one person I counseled very early on in my ministry who would lay awake at night pleading with God to save him, constantly wondering where he stood with God, and he had a fear that gripped his heart that told him, you don't have a relationship with God. And he wrestled with that. No spiritual growth could take place in his life until he put that to rest. You know what John is telling us, what God's Word is telling us? When I really understand the love of God, I will have no fear. I won't fear the God who loves me enough to send his son. Now, listen, I recognize there are passages that say we are to fear God. And there, I believe they're talking about the recognition that God is so much greater than us. He is not a peer, He is not an equal, He is God. But I also know that there is Scripture that tells us when we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, as we saw earlier in one of the texts, I can approach Him as Abba, Father. A precious closeness can develop. God doesn't need to be some distant deity. God is the God of love. In fact, look at what verse 18 goes on to say. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In other words, throws it away. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Earlier in the text, it said God is love. In verse 8 and in verse 16, both of those texts say God is love. And what the Word of God wants us to grasp in this text is this. I no longer need to fear the punishment of God because I've been delivered out of that. I am a recipient of the love of God, and I can know and experience the love of God with a depth that drives out fear. When it says that perfect love casts out fear, you know what it's communicating? Perfect love refers to love that is brought to maturity, to completion, As a child of God, we need to grow in our understanding of the love of God, and we need to understand that God doesn't push us away, He calls us to Him. So when I have come by confessing that Jesus Christ was sent by God to be the Savior of the world, I have a relationship with God the Father And I no longer face punishment, and nothing can separate me from that love that is found in God. Leave your finger in 1 John, and rather than put this on the screen, I want you to look right in your Bibles. And would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31 And I just want to read this and allow these words to really get into your hearts. It says, What shall we say to these things? Verse 31, Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? I might add in there, even yourselves. And then it goes on to say this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now, really key in on the last part of this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Savior. Isn't that a great passage? That's why perfect love casts out fear. Last part of the passage. I need to apply the love of God to how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 19. We love because He first loved us. In other words, my ability to love those around me comes because I have experienced the love of God in my life first. It is that relationship with God that gives us the ability to love. But then, as we come to the 20th verse, look at the question that John asks, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now again, I think this is talking about the importance of my union with other believers. If I am saying, look, I could love God... But it's not really important what my relationship is like with other believers. As a matter of fact, I cannot like most of them. they are peculiar people, and some people make that their life verse, man. And I don't like it. They bug me. That's not in keeping with what Scripture says. If I am a recipient of God's love, I will love what God loves. And guess who God loves? those around me. So I can't say, yeah, I love God, but I can't stand the other people around me. Can't do it. God wants us to love as He loves, to be as He is in this world, the one who loves. And listen, so many of us as believers are hearing this idea that, yeah, I can have a deep relationship with God and isolate myself, and really, there's no place for organized religion. I would ask you to substantiate that idea scripturally. Nowhere in Scripture do I find that concept that the fellowship of believers is unimportant to God. It's imperfect, it has its challenges, but the Scripture is very clear that God wants us to be in fellowship with one another. The writer of Hebrews said this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is how God wants us to operate Interacting with other believers, loving them, not hating them. This is what God wants of us. He really sums it up by that question. How can I love the objects, not love, the objects of God's love, my fellow believers, that I see right in front of me, and say that I love God whom I haven't seen It's a very practical call for us to live out the love of God. And then he closes it with this 21st verse and find encouragement. The sermon also closes with this. But look at what it says. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. My response as a child of God, to the love of God is to allow the love of God to flow through me into the lives of other people. As I abide in God, as I experience the maturity and the fullness of His love in my life, it will evidence itself in the way that I love the brethren. And I would submit to you, the closer you get to God, the closer you will get to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The more passionately you'll love them. The more forgiving you'll be when they offend you. The more active you'll be in ministering to their needs. That's living what we believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and thank you for the call that it is to all of us to abide in you. Lord God, may we be faithful to abide. May we see the love that you have for us be perfected in our lives, deepening our response to one another as godly followers, drawing from your resources and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.